But if it's your business, do you have a site with technology that you control that um, that is the focal point for anything else that you do marketing wise, whether you're great with email and KV core or follow up boss, or you're wonderful on TikTok or social. Like when those algorithms change, when Google spam filters change, do you, have you trained your audience to come find you on KurtEuler.com? And that's that second big thing because then it doesn't matter where you choose to invest in marketing. You have a central hub that everything focuses back to. You're listening to the Real Estate Sessions podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Risser, Executive Vice President, Strategic Partnerships with Rate My Agent, a digital marketing platform designed to help great agents harness the power of verified reviews. For more information, head on over to ratemyagent.com. Listen in as I interview industry leaders and get their stories and journeys to the world of real estate. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 348 of the Real Estate Sessions podcast. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for telling a friend. Today, we're going to have a lot of fun. Today, we are talking to Kurt Euler, who's the Vice President of Marketing Operations for EXP Holdings. But what a background. This guy uh, did a lot of things prior to the world of real estate, including stuntman, scuba rescue, and high angle rescue. And he's a certified alligator handler. Yes, <laughs> that's the first time I've ever mentioned that phrase on the Real Estate Sessions podcast. So you want to listen in. Let's get this thing started. Kurt, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Bill. Yeah, it's it's so funny. The podcast notes come in from your, you have a company that helps you. And I thought this was really cool. And then it dawned on me that you and I have probably met at an EXP event because you're working very closely with EXP, the marketing department. Let's talk about that for a second. T tell me what you're doing at EXP right now. Am I right? Did we meet? Yeah, we we did meet. So um, I, uh, I EXP World Holdings acquired um, the company that I was with a little over three years ago, and then since then, um, our team's been leading uh, one of the small team of three people that actually lead all of EXP's consumer technology. And so, um, right. which which is super fun to be part of this just growth rocket ship. I've had the uh, the opportunity to interview Glenn and talk to him. He's a brilliant guy who, you know, that know, knowing that he had to make a change had to be, it had to be uh, not profit, but it had to be revenue. That was a big difference, right? And I think uh, a lot of people doubted him and I don't think they're doubting him now. Yeah, I um, I mean, I've been part of a couple of hyper growth companies, which is is weird to say to even be part of one. Um, yeah. But um, and and not everything is that way. But but it feels different when you know there's a there's a muscle memory from how do you grow like not five to ten percent a year, but how do you grow fifty to three hundred percent a year? And um, it feels it feels very good um, being here because that's how that's how he operates and that's how much yeah. of the team continues to do so. That's awesome. Well, look, uh, most of my listeners know that I, I like to start at the beginning. I really, uh, I'm fascinated where people come from, um, how they got to be where they're at. And so the easiest way to start with that is, is your childhood. And I'm going to go, I'm going to ask you, I, I, looking at some of the things I could, you know, in my research, I found out, you know, that, that it seems like you were preordained to have a life in tech and entrepreneurship. And let's talk about that, right? Your parents, I think your father, uh, was early on in this game, if you wanted to call it that. Uh, and, and so let's talk about what that, what role that your mom and dad played getting you. Yeah. Yeah. My dad was, um, I'd say a glorified grunt at actually Bell Labs used to be like the Apple or, you know, Tesla of the day. 
And so um, I build my first hours thanks to him when I was like eight or nine with Bell Labs. So I was really good at math even very early on. And um, my dad was a person that would take all like say cell phones now. Um, somebody else came, you know, came up with the whole network on, a, on schematics and he, he would lead the teams to actually go build it in the field. And so, and it take, take what was on paper and make it, make it reality. And they'd had some problems and I happened to take me in an office and, um, I, I solved something they'd been struggling with. And he was like, well, we pay people for this. So, uh, he built hours for it. So I, I got to be around some high techs very early on, but it was just also weird from a tech perspective. And I didn't think about it was growth takes time. And my dad is blessed with one of those that people where he didn't sleep. And so like until he had cancer the third time, I think he slept an hour to an hour and a half a night. Then he started sleeping more like a normal person. And so between he just put in more hours than anybody I'd ever seen. And my mom just had this country work ethic where, I mean, I remember like, uh, um, I mean, well, I did spend, uh, we, we moved to Alabama when I was 11. I mean, I still remember I was probably like seven, maybe eight in uh, Michigan where we had outages when we lived in Chicago and like, it's 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 late at night late enough that the moon is way up in the sky and i just remember telling my mom like when can we go to bed well we were out like raking leaves for this like one acre like garden that we, that, that she had she's like we'll go to sleep when we're done wow and, and and like that that work ethic like i just i didn't even i had no there's no way i could ever go and pay for that kind of like basically coaching and consulting that that taught me like what it's like and exposure to both working hard and, and really just like technology at an early age. Yeah. I think that that probably drives into the fact that you, when you attended school, you went to Vanderbilt, which very cool school. Um, you were a track athlete. You loved running. And which is for me, that's uh, that's, I don't get that, but that's awesome <laughs> for you. <laughs> and, and I think you, you talked about the fact that, you know, being an athlete and having that uh, discipline and all of the stuff that that takes, especially at a collegiate level, really primed you for what you're going to do in your life, you know, running companies and growing businesses and things. Let's talk about that. Yeah. I I mean, even now it's like, you know, if, if you want to ring my bell when I'm hiring, if, if I'm hiring something like I love hiring athletes and healthy addicts. And I mean, every, a every athlete is a healthy addict, but I mean, to say that in terms of people that have had like true, like, like bad addictions, but have overcome that. I mean, that's a huge kind of like, that's a process into itself. But I mean, as an athlete, it's like, you, there's nothing you could do, like from a running perspective or pick any sport where you could make up for a week or three weeks of like screwing off by just going and make up practice in one day. And so like I, I was running, you know, 60, sometimes 120 miles a week, uh, especially like in the summer when we're working on things. And it's like you couldn't you can't do all of that mileage like in one or two days. It has to be spread out. So it's small things done consistently which is what it takes to be successful running companies. I mean, at the end of the day, it's perseverance that wins. Perseverance and operations. Like everybody has good ideas. I mean, and good ideas and bad ideas. Like they're the, they feel the exact same until you realize that a bad idea was bad and you shouldn't have been doing it for six months. But what matters is operations and just putting in the time. You get out of school and I, first of all, you have the most varied background of anyone in the tech world that I've ever interviewed. And, and I'm probably, you know, if this is episode 348, so there's a lot of people I've chatted with, but I'm going to throw some things out there like stuntman, uh, unbelievable, a certified alligator handler. And I live in Florida now, so that really is intri intriguing to me. And 
a member of uh, something called High Angle and Scuba Rescue Teams. I get the scuba part, right? I, I, especially with what I'm watching in California where I grew up. Um, there's a lot of rescue going on in water. But let's talk about, first of all, what's High Angle Rescue? And then really alligators? <laughs> yes, on both. Um, it goes back to largely, I mean, to my dad as well. I mean, I, I picked up those genes where I do not need to sleep like most people. And so I'm in my mid forties, but um, you know, when, when you only sleep two or three hours a night, um, you get more hours to do things. And so like when my wife and I got married, it was like, Hey, do you want to go to, do you want to go to go to bed with me or wake up with me? And, and, and I asked her that a couple of weeks before we got married and she was like, it took her a minute. She was like, you do email me at, at like three o'clock in the morning. And then like, that was just like a mind shift for her. And I was like, so I, I get a little bit more time, but, um, but literally like I became a member of the Alabama state rescue squad in Marshall County, Alabama at 14. Um, shouldn't have been able to, but there was a bad ice storm. And in the County, there were four total people, my dad and me being two of them that could drive on the snow and ice that we had. And so, um, he got permission, uh, at the, at the state level for me to join the rescue squad. And I was, uh, using a suburban or, a, you know, an old, uh, Jeep to help pull out, you know, pull out Hummers from the National Guard that were, uh, you know, off in the ditch between like that kind of allowance and skills my dad had taught me when I was younger and maybe wasn't the wisest, but still taught. Learn scuba very early, high angle. Think about anything with cliffs, rappelling. Um, I, uh, I, I'm not a, I'm not a really a rock climber, but I can go down and I'll do a lot of controlled risk, what we, you and I both do in work. Um, and so, um, I started that when I was 14. And so, uh, did that for many years. Um, actually, even when I moved, after I moved up to Chicago, I'd still go down and join, um, Alabama when there was different things that went on. So. Wow. So how do gators come into play? Come on, Kurt. I mean, seriously. Well, the stunt work, again, I don't sleep. And so Chicago was doing a lot of movies at the time. And, and I met a gentleman that um, I was out and I was like, well, what do you do? And he's like, well, I'm, I'm a database programmer by day. Um, but really, I'm a stuntman because there wasn't a real full-time movie industry in Chicago at that time and not enough for full-time stunt people. And, um, and I was like, well, what does that look like? So I started hanging out with them and uh, literally started training stuntmen and women and training with them. And so uh, people for uh, Batman's, you know, Dark Knight movies and Public Enemy and some others. And so friends that have a lot cooler experiences than me. Um, but I took a friend with me to some of the training sessions that he hurt his back pretty bad. And so he needed an epidural. And so I went with him, took off work to go with him because I'm like, well, I kind of broke you. So I'll go with you, Mike, to, to you know, to, to bring yeah. you back after you get the epidural to lower the inflammation. And as I'm sitting in this doctor's office for basically people with disposable income or time to do stupid stuff like us, I read, hey, there's only one place in the United States that you can legally go learn to handle alligators unless you work for a company for like six months full time because Florida, Louisiana, like... The, those yeah. legislators, because this, the animals are native there, they've done the wise thing. You have to go work for a company for like six months full time before they can let you touch an alligator over about this big, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you know, 30 inches long um, without its mouth taped. And I was like, hey, you're supposed to be good in like a week or two, right? He's like, yeah. I was like, all right, I booked us flights to Colorado. And so Alamosa, uh, actually about 15 minutes north of Alamosa, Colorado, which is still the middle of nowhere, Colorado. Um, there's Colorado gators 
Um, and it's this animal sanctuary with on a geothermal spring. And that's where I first learned to kind of handle alligators. And so like there's 1100 alligators in the middle of nowhere, Colorado, that it's a tilapia farm. And so they literally fillet the top of tilapia and they brought in gators like decades ago to be the trash compactors for them. And, um, it's just great business. Wow. All you do is insert labor and you get money out the other side. And um, so uh, that's where I first learned to do it. So uh, anything up to about maybe an eight foot uh, gator I can handle by myself. Wow. All right. All right. So, so you're, yeah, that's never been said on this show before. You may just need to ask some people some, some, some questions. I'm sure some agents out there have that experience. I'll have to, it's, it's gotta be someone that grew up in Louisiana or Florida though, not, not Chicago and went to Denver. That's great. Well, let's, let, let's talk about, um, really, you know, some of your real early successes when you, when you got into the, you know, heavy into the space. Um, there's a lot of things you, you played in with, you know, there's some gaming and website creation and that sort of thing. Um, but the spatial data, I mean, I think especially as important as that is today, which is unbelievably important in our world. You know, you talk about targeted ads and all kinds of great stuff. Let's talk about how, how you got into that world. Uh, and and maybe for those who, who don't know, we'll talk about real quick what it is um, and some of the things that are being it's being used for today that we wouldn't even think. Yeah, about. I mean, we every, every one of us use spatial data in ways that, like you know, twenty years ago, nobody used it. And so, um, the so I went to go work for um, didn't mean to, but uh, I was meaning to go. I was try, looking for jobs with investment banks and kind of being that that go between between the the IT programming side and and the, the top you know uh, mm-hmm. leaders and uh, those working in algorithms. And I got a call from a, a retained search firm that said, hey, look, we're looking for somebody to come work with Denise Doyle and Saladin Khan at this uh, little company at the time called uh, Navigation Technologies, became Navtech, now it's called Here Technologies. And um, they're literally the spatial data. We, like, I mean, many people think about Google Maps, but Google Maps is nowhere near the largest like provider of this stuff. We provided all that data. And so if you use, uh, you know, like I invented the core technology behind Waze, um, like the navigation apps. And so that those, that IP has been licensed by Google and Apple and a bunch of others. But think about all the places where like spatial digital data, like every time you do a, a route from one place to another or in real estate, we do, a, I want to search for homes within two miles or 20 minutes driving of this school. Like that all needs uh, 2D and three-dimensional spatial data behind the scenes. And so I had 10 and a half years at this company that we took from $85 million a year in revenue to $1.44 billion. And it was like, I mean, it was like being at McKinsey or Bain basically for 10 years being mentored by people like I mentioned two of them. And then later by Judson Green, he was the president of Disney uh, theme parks and came kind of as his semi-retirement to Navtech until he realized like there's a lot of money here. And we were just at that place where the rest of technology picked up and he went from like navigation systems being like a $20,000 add-on to like it being in your cell phone and doing MapQuest for free. Like I was there for all of that. And so I would walk out of a meeting from uh, Siemens VDO that makes the navigation system for Lexus and then walk into FedEx Logistics, which is using it for getting packages. And then um, I walk into my innovation teams where I had friends in the video game industry. And I was like, well, like on the back shelf behind me, I mean, I know we're audio, but it's like, I've got Microsoft Flight Simulator X because I had this crazy idea to walk into Microsoft and say, hey, how about we save you 20 to $40 million in building your next flight simulator game? And they were like, let's have that conversation. That was like literally like at 8 a.m., a 9 a.m., and a 10 a.m. But we did that across like 11 industries for spatial data. And it was like 
I could have gone to Bain or McKenzie and cut, may, may not, maybe not have had that same background. Let's, let's talk about in the real estate space, you know, how that's, how that's exploded, right? Over the last, let's call it, we'll call it 10 years. I think when like RPR, right? RPR launched a while ago and it struggled to get a foothold. I think it's a great tool. I think there's some great stuff in it. I'm guessing your stuff is in there because they do that. 20 minutes from here or yeah. two miles to the office. So they're using that space. That's one place agents are using spatial data daily if they're using Absolutely. RPR. Well, and there's tons of things like that. I mean, anytime that any, literally any search that you're, um, that, that, that you're just comparing like distance or time or anything. Um, I mean, a lot of the applications like RPR might use uh, um, the United States government's census tiger data, but but that data is mm-hmm. is basically free because the government came to our company and paid us an exorbitant amount of multiple, multiple millions of dollars so that we would give them a snapshot of that data. And so um, for their purposes. And so like they've kind of bought data to open source, but it's still not nearly as good as what you can to kind of get on the private market. And now there's companies like Mapbox and others that Google still Google collects their own data. But yeah, there's places like anytime you do a home search, um, the listing alerts we all get that come out. And then there's, you know, a ton of other things that we have on there too. It's like, you know, there's, there's applications that consumers or agents can go to that says, here's the seven homes I want to go look at. Give me the optimal route between those. And then you'll get, and then you'll schedule your times at those based on one, two, three, four, as opposed to crisscrossing across town. That's just some of the places that we see um, that data used. Yeah. So it it seems there's this natural connection between what you did at NavTech and here with MLSs, I would guess. (laughs) I mean, data, it's data all over the place, right? Very much both, both because it involves spatial data, but like in 2019, um, uh, RISA, the Real Estate Standards Organization brought me and Scott Lockhart in to talk about kind of two things. One was, um, Showcase IDX had been one of the, the, the first companies to start using web API at that time, which was meaningful for accessing the MLS data. Yeah. But on the other side, like my 15 to 20 minutes that I really talked about was really meant to scare MLSs into why they need to work better together with RISO. And so, the, one of the still oh one of the reasons that Navtech uh, here technologies exists so well now is they take disparate data just like real estate and so we created this multi billion dollar a year uh, revenue product by going out to all the local municipalities the states the counties the um, and the the cities giving them tools very often um, but sometimes taking data in many different formats putting it into one big database for the U S and eventually the world and then having a normalization for, well, what can you and can't you do with some of that data, much like MLS data. And so whether you're bringing in like an IDX feed to provide a home search for an individual agent or much more of what I do now is, you know, running one of the largest uh, sites in the, in the U.S. in terms of active real estate listings, it's still compliance, disparate data um, in very different formats. Like I love what Sam and them are doing at, at Riso, but yeah. But this is not a, as you know, this is not a real standards organization. It's a loose, loose standards organization. We have a long way to go. It'll be better for the whole industry if we fully adopt like, like real standards that we can share data. But like we were able to do that in a different industry. And so part of me talking to Riso, part of what I do now is having that background saying both one, there's a lot of money if we can all coordinate, but also if you don't, it's possible somebody will do basically what here did was we became that intermediary where these local sources did not coordinate. Somebody eventually invests enough money to come in and do that. 
it was Philips Electronics for us. They invested like $800 million to go mm-hmm. and build this kind of normalized platform. And, and, and it's like, so we made the money as opposed to the local sources. And all they got was free tools that offset some of their IT budgets. And right. so I actually don't want that to happen for real estate. And it's like standards exist for a reason. Like we should work together. What, how do you get to real estate? What was that thing that brought you over? Because, I mean, you obviously, you, you had things going very well, really well. And, uh, you know, what was that pull for you? Some of it was just timing and serendipity, but um, I'm, a, I'm a big believer. I've written a good bit on my personal side about net weaving as opposed to networking. Like networking is kind mm. of a selfish thing to me. Um, I, and at the end of the day, it's not, but we've all shaken hands with somebody and they'll look at your business card. You can watch them talk to somebody else and they make that decision that says, you're not important enough for me to care. And, and, and so that's underlying. That's really what networking tends to be. Net weaving is more of the servant leadership approach, which when we talk about where it's like, look, I'm meeting people because I want to know, like, could, can I help you? Like at the end of the day, I hope it comes back to, and, and helps me at some point. But I'd much rather just be a trusted, uh, trusted advisor to you, Bill, than than, mm-hmm. than than just make money off of you. And so I had taken 18 months off after um, starting one of the first influencer marketing platforms. Uh, only came out of that sabbatical because weird as it's going to sound, I got call I got a call from President Trump. Um, so love him or hate him, but I was called to come yeah. do some things with the Made in America movement and run some uh, run some events um, and and bring him some uh, information um, for Made in America companies using that label and very public C-SPAN stuff. And um, so as part of that, I kind of got back into the game a little bit. And uh, Alan Pinstein, who I now, now a peer of mine I work with, called me up. He's a fraternity brother, Kappa Sigma, and said, hey, I sold this company called TourBuzz, um, but I have this other real estate company and it's doing okay. But I really want to just talk to you about like, you talked to your wife into letting you take 18 months off. That seems like a difficult conversation. Can we grab coffee and we just talk about that? And as part of that, it's how he actually mentioned the showcase IDX. And he was, and it was, it's what I actually like. I, I was talking to some private equity groups and he, like superb technology, but 10 X better than anything else that was out there. Um, but they had issues with marketing and sales and, and growth. And I was like, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll grab coffee with Scott Lockhart, make the introduction and um, yeah. like three or four days we uh, later, we talked. And I think the day after that, I accepted an offer to come join them. Um, and it was all from just grabbing coffee with Alan to, uh, from a fraternity perspective, to, to offer some input, um, which ended up sucking him back into the business. So, <laughs> And he didn't get his 18 months off, it sounds like. No, he got a little bit of time off, and he got involved okay, pretty quickly. All right. <laughs> That's great. You're, you're passionate about marketing. It shows. You can hear it in your voice. Let's let's get can, do you have three things real estate agents should be doing right now in their marketing strategy. We'll give them some real takeaways here. Yeah, I um, both for my showcase IDX days, but also just public th- uh, my public stuff. I um, I guess inside tens of thousands of real estate agent CRMs and um, like a lot of people, as we know, aren't doing a lot of transactions and some you see this big growth. And the first thing for me is this realization for agents of like three things to do. The first is you have to have this acknowledgement that says you, you, it is your business as a 1099 contractor. Like you are not a Keller Williams agent, not an EXP agent, not, not a Remax agent. You are your own business and, and, and like you need to show up every day and, and think about how you grow your marketing and your business unto that. And, and brokerages are great. I'm, I mean, I work with the brokerage. Um, I love, I, I love all of those that I just mentioned, but, but it's, it's your business, not theirs. 
And, and yeah. most agents don't show up that way, I find. They, um, and, and that affects everything else that they do. And when I look at those that have seen this huge growth um, and those that stay there, they realize it's their business. Um, and then when you do that, it drives two other things. And so the first thing is, uh, the second thing for me is agents need to have their, they need to have their own website. And it's really, and it, it's not a subdomain site that's from their brokerage. It's got to be on their own URL. Um, those others are great stepping stones. But if it's your business, do you have a site with technology that you control that um, that is the focal point for anything else that you do marketing wise, whether you're great with email and KV core or follow up boss or you're wonderful on TikTok or social. Like when those algorithms change, when Google spam filters change, do you, have you trained your audience to come find you on KurtEuler.com? And that's that second big thing, because then it doesn't matter where you choose to invest in marketing. You have a central hub that everything focuses back to. Um, yeah. And then that third piece is it very much still goes off of those that being your business is. You gotta have a clean database. Like this, the biggest thing that you have is is your database of contacts. And like, by all means, go chase new leads. New leads are important, but those agents that really grow their business, they have clean data. I mean, I have really good personal friends with like uh, the people that run Agent Hub three hundred and sixty. That literally, so often, the reason people come to them is because they're just like, my contacts are mess. The technology is hard. Can you help clean up this dirty closet so I can find my purple shirt that I really like? Like that's kind of the figurative <laughs> they give because as if it's your business, like referrals and past clients and one being available, whether you do the Brian Buffini approach or Tom Ferry's approach, like you've got to have, you've got to go back and mine continually your past database. And if, if, I mean, literally like if you don't, if you don't have your CRM in place, like what are you going to do at that point? You can't send a newsletter. You have no idea of people moving outside of your area. Depending on parts of the country, like you might have 0.1% or 15% of the people in your CRM moving out of your service area. If you don't know that, you're never going to get a referral from those people. I'll share what I say about CRMs with uh, with agents when I talk to a small group or whatever. I say, that at the very least, if you just did this, you'll be way ahead of the game. When you talk to somebody, document it, create a contact and document it in the CRM. Create the next time you're going to call them, whether it's two days, two months, two, whatever, and then call them and do it again. Yeah. Is that, am I right? Absolutely. If they just did that. And, 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 and those notes are so important. Like, so um, my wife and I have a little girl who's almost 16 months old. When when she came, I got three text messages from people, two of which were agents um, that were, um, and, and two of those uh, um, had voice messages or had videos in there that were literally, they took note, oh, sorry, not was when she was born, it was at their one, at her one year uh, birthday, and um, so that means they made a note, probably just from a Facebook post um, about uh, yeah. uh, about Hannah Grace's birth, and they sent me just like all the messages were basically the same. It was, hey, this is special, such a special time. These are the good old years. Like like you need to relish this time and 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 put off other things. And and it was just like they weren't silly for anything, and it was just touch points. Oh my gosh, that's what. That's what a good CRM does. They made some quick notes exactly. that this is a meaningful moment. And I don't know if, if those three, like, did they do a Facebook comment? Did they send me an email or something when she was born? I don't remember. But one year later, there was only three people out of the thousands of people that I know that followed up on her birthday. That's awesome. That's exactly it. That's, 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 the, that's the power. Let's stick with websites for a second because I think that, um, you know, there's this site out there. There's this thing, the Z word, <laughs> Zillow, and and they're really they have an amazing 
they built an amazing website. It's it's a, a just drives so much traffic. Obviously, generates billions of dollars in revenue for the company. I'm an agent. I'm just me. I just have my website. Can I can I hold them off? Is there something I can do? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm I'm very biased because I come from you know I come from working with Showcase IDX, but I mean, there's a bunch of third party reports that say like people choose that search, which is only exists on individual agents' websites over Zillow. And I think it, for it's for two reasons. One is it is a it is a great modern search, and a lot of the home searches agents have, like the agents don't use them. They they go they they go use other tools. And so it's like if if you don't have a home search on your site like Showcase IDX that people will actually use, well, you the only promise I can guarantee you in real estate is if that home search on your site or you don't have a site, but if your clients won't use it. They're going to go to Zillow, and that means a competitive agent is going to call your client 100% of the time. Yep. The other thing that I think with that for, for agents, if that actually use is a lot of the, a lot of agents, they do a wonderful job. Like Jay Valento is this agent in California that I just love. Like part of him, him talking and educating his client base is like that he protects his client's data, which is not what what the, uh, what that big uh, portal you mentioned does. And so you can go look yeah. at their public documents. Like they make, billions of dollars like between with premier agent and which is basically advertising selling providing consumer contact and budget information like jay and others point that out to their clients it says look like when you fill out things on my website like i don't go and sell that information i make money when i can help you with the transaction and you want to bless me with that and so that yeah. that's much different than i find a lot of agents they try going head to head with some of the big portals as opposed to pointing out the like there's nothing wrong with, uh, you know, with a wide range of financial uh, advisors, but I will only ever work with a fee-based financial advisor. I'll pay you a flat percentage. I'll pay you for my plan with the guarantee that you will not be making money on the backside for, for what you recommend to me, because that's how I view trust. Well, when you explain to consumers that says, Hey, I only get, you know, like your, your contact information. And when you're looking for a half million dollar condo in downtown Chicago, that's like basically going publicly and saying you're going to move a retirement account in the next 90 days. Who wants to buy that info? And and people freak right. out. They freak out enough. My wife says, stop asking people, like, do they know what happens? Like, we're at a barbecue or something because it changes the whole event. Um, that's that's what I that's what I think helps the agent's website is it's not just having the site, but it's making sure their clients and prospective clients realize that they're in a different game as being a trusted agent over some big portals. So it keeps coming back to trust. I love that. You know, you talked about Jay and he feels like he's, he's got influence over his database because he stays connected and influencer. That's kind of a big deal today. Everyone's talking about it. Is, is there, is there a world in real estate for that term? Um, is it look different than what, uh, you know, you know what I'm thinking about yeah. on Instagram? It absolutely does. I mean, I think one of the things just in real estate is you have to differentiate between like, let's just call it the B2B, the, the recruiting agent influencer versus like the consumer fake focused uh, agent. Nothing, nothing's wrong with those two, but the person that's bringing over uh, agents and speaking to other agents and coaching programs, um, that's a different type of influence than somebody who's going out to consumers. Yeah. But in, in both cases, um, I, there's definitely a room for it uh, in real estate. I just, I think too often people end up thinking like they have to have 10,000 or a hundred thousand like people that follow them on YouTube or TikTok or Instagram um, to be meaningful. 
And and they need to realize that like we all have influence. And if anything, like the smaller the the smaller your tribe is, the more influence you have. Like if you have ten, and like I have tens of thousands of people that follow me on Twitter. Do those people generally care? Like some of them come to my website if I write a new blog post. But if I say, hey, like some piece of information, or I like this piece of camping gear, do those people really like? What do they think about me? I don't know most of those people. If my aunt posts yeah. that on Facebook, if the average agent posts that, like there's tremendous value there um, and, and, and trust. And we go back to your, that, that trust word you were talking about. And so that's what I think people need to think about is we're all influencers and this is an influence economy. And you need to realize that as an agent, you get to do something that actually most big brokerages can't do and that most brands can't do. And that's run a a micro-influencer campaign. Because in that case, you're the only person that you're having to connect with. And so be authentic. Like in real estate, share content for the 95% of the time when you're, when you're, uh, you know, sphere, when you're people in your CRM that for 95% of the time when they're not actively buying and selling, but still relevant to them as a home buyer or somebody in the community, you're going to have influence and your business will grow. Yeah, that's great. Um, you, you talk a lot about, especially on your website, and I'll recommend this, by the way, KurtEuler.com. Amazing site, folks. A lot of great content, great information. Um, it's where I picked up a lot of this that we're talking about today. But you talk a lot about high achieving servant leadership. Um, let's let's discuss that for a second. You know, what is it? How does it help? Especially, you know, for let's say a, a team lead who's trying to grow and do something a little bit different. Because obviously, there's a lot of leadership involved when you're taking a team from ten to try to get it to seventy, right? Right. Yeah. So traditionally, I mean, all leadership styles come under fall underneath this big umbrella of authoritative or autocratic like leadership, which mm-hmm. basically is do what I say or you get fired. I mean, at the end of the day, that's the, as the boss, the team lead, um, like that's still kind of there. But but authoritative, like you get micromanagement, but also like it. That's the threat that tends to be there, whether people intended to or not. But it's very much the hey, I'm the boss. Do exactly what I told you. The servant leaders much takes much more of the time to establish purpose and realize that like hey, the biggest thing that I can often do in trying to grow my team um, is, is figuring out how I can serve them so that they can accomplish what 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 I and the company need them to do. I spend an exorbitant amount of my time. I mean, I am very much a doer on my team. Anybody that works with me knows that. Um, but it's like, but I'm only able to do that because like I have a gentleman named Scott on my team that he's my operations manager, newly into that role as like part of, part of his job, part of my job is actually to make him successful. It's like, he's my factory manager. And so he tells me when to show up to things at time. And so I help define the strategy. And then he, you know, my job is to then step back in and see where he's at and train him, train Tiffany on my team so that they can be better day in and day out. And, and that servant kind of leadership is I've been the authoritative leader. I've been in a place where I've made people millions of dollars and they still won't take my phone call today. And, um, one, nobody wants to have that wake behind them for the destruction that does in personal lives. But but yeah. I've now been part of high-achieving servant leadership teams where I can very much believe whether whether you're a, a one-person agent that's trying to grow that 70-person team or like in my case now, we're a 2,000-person company trying to you know grow staff and agent count. Like if I want to grow faster and higher than I could in anything else, you serve your people, you follow a servant leadership approach, and that's the best way to approach it. Uh, we're, we're running on time, but I, I have a couple more quick questions for you. The first one is, 
you know, we're coming out of the pandemic uh, with a unbelievable real estate market that I think very few people predicted in March of 2020. <laughs> and and so, you know, there's this little, little correction going on right now. I don't think it's anywhere near what we went through in the uh, dark days. But what do you see going forward? What should we be expecting? And I know that's a tough question. I'm trying to, <laughs> but, but I think you can handle so it. So let me distill what th- tens of thousands of posts on lab coat agents and real closers <laughs> and what people, um, yep. I mean, just put it all in one place. Yeah. I mean, I mean, <laughs> agents are scared. We know that we see it all the time. Um, but I, you can't make decisions out of fear. I mean, we look back whether, whether it's the same correction we had before more or less, like the one thing that's consistent when you look back at past corrections in real estate and other industries is this is the time when we're going to look back in two years and a small number of agents, small percentage are going to have added one to two zeros to their net worth. Like mm. that, there is such abundance now for, for agents that says, look, like, yeah, you'd love to be showing homes, but, but interest rates were over 7% and they're back down a little bit below that now. If you're not showing homes, like the best thing you can do, or if you have spare money, is to invest in organic search and content marketing. You'll have a 50 to 100x return if you do it right. And it's not, it's one of those things you can't just like, kind of like running before. You can't just put in a bunch of money right now and get a result instantly. It does take consistent consistency over time. And literally, if you start to do things like build out community pages on your website, bank content that will be meaningful for you to share out over the next two years, you will add one to two zeros to your net worth. I don't care what level you're at right now. That's how big of an opportunity there is if you do that right. Kurt, this has been great. I'll close this with the same question we've asked every guest uh, uh, going back to 2015. And that's what one piece of advice would you give a new agent just getting started? They need to invest in building that own website. You don't have to spend money to somebody. You might have a 14-year-old niece or a son or something that can build that WordPress site for you. But not not for a new agent, it's not just to have that site. It's the process of writing that bio about who you are and why people should care and the process of building that site that's going to fundamentally change your business. Kurt, if someone wants to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? My personal website, KurtEuler.com. I spend an exorbitant amount of time writing right now. Um, and, and would love feedback from people. Awesome. This has been great. Once again, I apologize for not making the connection immediately <laughs> that we, we sat down at, <laughs> at that event. I'm honored you chose me, uh, chose me as a guest before you put the personal connection together. Yeah. Look, it was, uh, like I said, it was, it's just a, a awesome background. I'm sure we're going to get, I'm going to get a lot of comments from people that, that get to, uh, to, to listen to this. So I appreciate it. I'll see you in Orlando in May. And uh, we'll have to have a drink or something and, and, and chat a bit more. And thank you so much for your time today. It was awesome. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to The Real Estate Sessions. Please head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash RE Sessions to leave a review or a rating and subscribe to The Real Estate Sessions podcast at your favorite podcast listening app.